listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. Happy May Day, everyone. Hope you got a little time off of work to go out and do something radical. We're going to talk to some radical teachers in this episode uh, with regards to the strike going on in Arizona and the rolling wave of labor unrest across schools nationwide. We're also going to glimpse at the world of higher education with a peek at the Columbia Graduate Workers Union strike, their first ever And here's some other labor news. So anyone who keeps an eye on New York state politics knows that Albany is basically a bottomless pit of corruption and ineptitude. But this election season, some refreshing new voices are emerging from the swamp. The announcement of Cynthia Nixon's candidacy has jolted the Capitol and managed to scare even Governor Andrew Cuomo himself, whose once seemingly inevitable path to re-election has suddenly been tripped up by the first viable challenge from the left in years by newcomer, um, but someone with name recognition, Nixon, formerly of Sex and the City. The Working Families Party recently endorsed Nixon for governor by an overwhelming margin, as well as the New York City Councilman Jumani Williams for lieutenant governor. The endorsements set off a major rift within the Working Families Party, which has long stood as a progressive alternative to mainline Democrats and has managed to thrive over the years by uh, running fusion tickets. The endorsement of Nixon triggered the breakaway of the party's major union backers, including SEIU, 32BJ, and CWA District 1. The loss of union support will be a loss of big source of financial and member support. And to add insult to injury, Governor Cuomo has reportedly been pushing the unions behind the scenes to stop supporting the community groups that make up the other key component of the party's progressive coalition. So the governor basically wants to punish the Working Families Party for not endorsing him. Um, And the targets include many of the grassroots community allies that have helped push measures that Cuomo himself supported, like the Fight for 15, um, the Campaign for Fair Housing, um, better funded schools, and other economic justice battles in New York City and beyond. I spoke with Jonathan Weston of New York Communities for Change about what the potential loss of union support means for his group. Look, I think it has the potential to have a huge detrimental impact impact on the work group we do like you know just fundamentally i mean i think it means less organizers on the ground organizing low-income families you know against landlords you know fighting to stop evictions fighting to um you know keep families in their homes and fighting to get repairs from negligent landlords so it just means you know a lot less work is being done on the doors and then the communities, uh, which is a huge, you know, like detriment to like, you know, low income communities of color. Um, and I think that's who this, uh, you know, kind of attack is, uh, mostly targeting is black and brown communities. And, uh, it's kind of, you know, it's really disgusting, especially coming from a democratic governor that he wants to attack black and brown communities. What jarred people is that, um, the two major unions that were in the WFP coalition broke away. So, I mean, what, what does the loss of that union support mean for you guys, both in terms of coalition building, in terms of your activism, as well as funding issues? You know, look, the governor is making threats. I think, you know, it's, you know, he's overtly making threats to the unions. I think 
you know, the loss of uh, labor support for our organization would mean a lot. And I think for other organizations too. Um, but I also think, you know, uh, labor is in a really hard position, right? I mean, it's like, uh, you know, I mean, you know, we're making an analogy. It's, it's, it's literally like a worker in a boss situation. Like labor is so dependent on the governor of New York for so many things, including contracts, negotiations, things like that. It's like, you know, a boss cramming down on workers. And that's exactly what it feels like is that, you know, the boss is trying to play his heavy hand uh, against the labor unions and at the detriment of, uh, you know, community organizations. And I think it's, uh, you, know, you know, really um, kind of maniacal on the governor's end to, you know, uh, you know, act like a, you know, kind of, you know, horrible anti-union, uh, you know, boss. And that was Jonathan Weston of New York Communities for Change. This week, the California Supreme Court made a sweeping ruling about companies that classify their employees as independent contractors. We have talked about this issue a lot on Belabored, from port truck drivers to Uber drivers to, well, some 12.5 million people across the country who are classified that way, according to a 2016 study, and of course, including yours truly. Companies like to call workers independent contractors because then they're exempt from labor protection, such as the minimum wage, overtime, benefits, even rest breaks. In the case of Uber or port truckers, it means that the worker is responsible for the cost and upkeep of their own vehicle and the wear and tear it experiences while they are making profits for somebody else. This classification has exploded in recent years, combining neoliberal be-your-own-boss rhetoric with decreased cost for employers. But now, at least in California... A huge number of businesses will be calling their lawyers saying, what do I do, according to one law professor quoted in the L.A. Times. Quote, when a worker has not independently decided to engage in an independently established business, but instead is simply designated an independent contractor, there is a substantial risk that the hiring business is attempting to evade the demands of an applicable wage order through misclassification. Chief Justice Tani Cantil-Sakuye, I'm probably mispronouncing that, apologies, wrote for the court. The ruling came in a class action lawsuit charging Dynamex Operations West Incorporated, a package and document delivery company that has counted Amazon.com among its clients, had misclassified its drivers as independent contractors. The court, in defending the rights of employees to wage and hour protections, also noted that such laws aim to prevent the public from having to assume financial responsibility for companies that underpay their workers by skirting the law. In other words, if your company is paying people so little that they can't afford to pay for their truck and also put food on the table, somebody else is picking up that slack. But the company should, in fact, be paying it, not the taxpayer. According to the California Labor Commissioner's website, the misclassification workers as independent contractors costs the state roughly $7 billion in lost payroll taxes each year. Julie Gutman Dickinson, an attorney who works with the Teamsters Port Trucker campaign, noted that over and over again, when individual port truck drivers bring lawsuits, they are found to be employees, not independent contractors. Now they are one step closer to hopefully being recognized as such across the board. New York's cabbies are running on empty these days as they plunge into economic and social crisis driven by the rideshare industry. A recent spate of devastating driver suicides has shooken up the driver community and prompted long overdue talk of reform at the city council. A number of bills have been introduced to uh, sort of 
you know, curtail the unchecked growth of the industry of for hire vehicles. And advocates now want to see various measures to contain uh, the expansion of Uber and Lyft. In the past few years alone, uh, Uber and Lyft have drastically expanded the city's for hire vehicle fleet, also known as FHV vehicles. Um, It's grown overall by about two thirds of the total share, which has sent many drivers towards poverty. Uber especially has a notorious volatile pricing scheme. Um, as well as uh, a big anti-regulatory and tax-dodging strategy for expansion wherever it goes, New York, like many other cities, is starting to grapple with the task of regulating this behemoth enterprise. And it's trying to get ahead of Uber, finally, um, with targeted regulation that could be a model for other cities. And we're all sort of clashing with Uber's relentless push uh, to displace traditional cabbies. Now, under a proposed economic plan issued by the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, drivers are seeking to promote sustainable driving jobs that would ensure one fair set of labor standards for the whole industry, uh, provide equitable, comparable rates across the different divisions of the sector uh, for financing vehicles um, and for licensing standards. Um, And most of all, it would include one fair pricing scheme for traditional yellow taxi and app service drivers. They're also campaigning for the establishment of a long-awaited health care plan for drivers, which would provide basic insurance through a fare-based subsidy uh, for each driver. Um, this has been tied up for a long time in litigation and has been held up due to various regulatory challenges. But now perhaps the mental health crisis that is pervading this uh, workforce uh, will finally force the city to implement the proposal. Many drivers currently, of course, have no source of regular health insurance because like many other for hire vehicle drivers nationwide, both yellow cabbies and rideshare drivers are not considered employees. They're operating companies, uh, so that leaves them basically deprived of benefits and standard labor protections because they're considered independent contractors. I spoke with Berevi Desai of New York Taxi Workers Alliance about what's at stake in their campaign to protect drivers' labor rights and health and to organize across the sector. Uh, That means app-based drivers as well as traditional yellow cabs. The political obstacle is Wall Street wealth. They're so dominant and, like, omnipresent. They've created, you know, such a, um, I think, fear among a lot of, you know, elected officials to regulate them. I mean, I think it's been really good to see that there is momentum at the city council to attempt to do something. I mean, the worst thing would be that we get nothing, right? And it's just lip service. But then on the other hand, if all we get is a cap, for example, just kind of freeze on the number of vehicles today, that doesn't help the hemorrhaging, you know, and the crisis point. So we're, and, you know, I think, I mean, as, as of now, I mean, none of the bills fully reflect the way forward that's um, outlined in our, in our platform. I mean, Kina, even on the cap, you know, we need to put in a provision for attrition, right? And so, so we can get to a number that can provide some stability. 
and not just like replace cars that are leaving and, and like how the numbers stay steady at a hundred thousand, which everybody knows is an unsustainable, you know, um, high number of vehicles. And, and then there's the issue of like, how do you raise driver income? So, you know, if, if what the city does is kind of look at this piecemeal and so only attempt to address SHV driver incomes, where does that leave the rest of the workforce that is literally dying? You know, I just would, I just think it would be so unconscionable if, in, if, the, if the city council and the mayor were not to have a comprehensive approach that stops the race to the bottom for all drivers. And that's why our, our proposal is that, that the yellow cab and green cab metered taxi rate be established as the minimum wage floor, you know, across the industry. And so the app companies, which already charge more than the taxi metered fare, but when they publish their rates to the public, they claim to charge lower, Right. And as long as like they have subsidies, like unending subsidies from Wall Street, you know, they could they could keep cutting the rate of fare. But then, you know, the other sectors can't. I mean, not only does that obviously affect the Uber drivers, but also the the sectors of other drivers cannot, you know, they 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 end up losing their their fares in that you know, in, in those kind of monopolistic games that these companies play. Like if all we address, for example, is, is saying for Uber drivers or Lyft drivers, they have to be guaranteed a certain pay rate. Um, again, one that means uh, it's, a, it's problematic for two reasons. One reason is because that does absolutely nothing for the other sectors of drivers, the yellow, green, livery, and black car drivers. The second reason it's problematic is because for the Uber drivers themselves, like Uber has already found a way, Uber and Lyft have already been detaching how much, uh, like the driver pay, passenger fare, right? And so it used to be the contract would say, all right, 80% to the driver, so the commission is 20%. But through what they started to do was engage in upfront pricing where they basically say, you know, the driver will get paid by a particular meter rate. And then meanwhile, the passenger will get charged either by that meter rate or by a different rate through upfront pricing. And if upfront pricing rate yields a higher fair, it's not the fare by which the driver is paid because they've already detached the driver pay from the passenger fare. So, and they've done it at a moment in time where their fare box revenue is increasing. And so as they're increasing the revenue, right, um, when there's a percentage of the revenue that the drivers are guaranteed, then driver income rises as the revenue rises. But once they detach the two, the wealth doesn't trickle down to the driver. And, and so it's not a coincidence that, that it's 
as the revenue has been rising, that's when they've attempted to detach the two. Right. And so we want to see that addressed. And so, so our key proposals are, you know, the vehicle cap and then the one meter rate regulation that says that no matter if the, if the company charges upfront pricing rate or the meter rate to the passenger, whichever is higher is the one that the driver is entitled to like 80% of. And then just like cap also on the FHV side, capping the vehicle financing, which does not happen now. It does happen on the yellow cap side, doesn't happen on the FHV side. So do you feel like generally speaking, you, you're calling for just uniform market controls across the entire industry then? I mean, that seems like ultimately the fairest solution is for everyone to be on one basic fair standard, what you're hoping for is a dynamic in which all drivers are treated fairly and the same. Exactly. And I just, it's like after five years of unfettered, you know, unfettered expansion and like no regulation. And when they are by far the wealthiest companies in the industry, not just in the industry, but in the city as a whole, like they can't really get away from you know get away with the argument that they're that they're this little startup that the city is you know is trying to bust up before it's given a chance right it's like the door has closed on that argument i mean this is sort of why there needs to be organizing across the whole sector right i mean just pitting the two mm-hmm. against each other as if they're rivals that's creating this like false dichotomy between the the interests of of all these different drivers right exactly and i think you know there are people out there like who just like they don't understand that like the five years of lack of regulation has created such an imbalance in this industry you know and and it's just it's it's such a vicious race to the bottom and they, you know, something needs to be done to, to, you know, help keep whole the entire workforce, right? I mean, everybody is in a race to the bottom, but if the focus is on lifting Uber and Lyft standards in a way that, in a way, in, in a way that no, that no other company could lift their standards, then, you know, then you've done nothing to address the race to the bottom and you've actually only made their, you know, their monopolization like more possible. There's a consumer element here too, because increasingly people aren't, are, are seeing the Ubers no longer enjoying the honeymoon of, uh, of being like, you know, the, the startup that shakes everything up. Now everyone is just like, oh, it's just another huge corporation. Yeah, and and the more they monopolize, the higher the fare gets, right? And like, what what's the new, what's the new thing that they're giving to the consumer in return? Like, I remember when um, in the yellow cab industry, like when we fought for a fare raise and it was our first one in eight years, and this city was, you know, was just like, well, if we give you this raise, then in return, you know, you have to do X, Y, and Z. Like, there's always a conditional growth, whereas these companies, they've not had to contribute 
to like the, you know, city's tax revenue. They've not had to contribute to raising labor standards or even um, increasing accessible transportation or like, you know, subsidizing mass transit, which is what the majority of the public still relies on. They've just taken and they've had to, they've had to give nothing in return to anybody. It, that it, it's such a public policy failure, right? Not to the driver, the consumer, the general public, you know, at large. I mean, or to, you know, or to marginalized communities within that general public. And that's just, that, that's a public, that's, that is a public policy failure. And we now have momentum, some sort of political will. And I think, you know, our concern is that it will get lost because they're, you know, Uber is making so much noise to kill the bills. And they're like, they've gotten their IDG, their company funded union to make noise, right? To basically say, hey, um, because like the, the bill that's sponsored by the chairman of the main committee, because his bill has three problematic provisions in it, which we agree with, but our position is we have momentum to like knock out those provisions. We, if we don't have to kill the bill, which could kill the momentum, and then we lose on everything else, right? And, and but, but IDG is taking the position to kill the bill because, you know, because it's helpful for Uber to kill the momentum. And that was Bhairavi Desai of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance. This week was, of course, May Day, and on May Day, teachers, students, and other workers in Puerto Rico held a general strike against austerity and disaster capitalism. For the teachers, as you heard on the last episode of Belabored, the struggle is against the closure and privatization of the public schools that they cleaned and prepared for reopening with their very own hands. The current plan put in place by the Fiscal Control Board that was imposed on the island by the U.S. government is to close 283 public schools potentially replacing them with charters, a replica of the disaster-enabled privatization of New Orleans's entire school district after Katrina. The teachers have already struck once against this plan and went out again on May Day, joined by students from the university who are facing a tuition increase that will more than double their costs, and other workers facing a potential 25% public sector pension cut and other attacks on their ability to earn a living. Protesters were greeted by police with tear gas, pepper spray, rubber bullets, and other violence. They arrested several students. Mercedes Martinez of the Federación de Maestros de Puerto Rico shared with me photos of heavily armed police, children who had been tear gassed, and a teacher being pepper sprayed directly in the face by two masked police officers. As teacher strikes across the U.S. get intense attention, we should not forget that the teachers in Puerto Rico are also part of the ongoing strike wave against austerity, privatization, and the continuation of an ideology that takes out a crisis caused by the ruling class on the backs of working people who are just trying to get by. In disaster-wracked Puerto Rico, the slow-motion disaster of fiscal control board-inflicted austerity has been sped up by Hurricane Maria. The crisis is even more acute now, and we should be paying just as much attention to it as we are to closer strikes. (music) 
As we record today, Arizona teachers remain on strike as that state's legislature has not yet voted on the budget that would give them the raise they have been calling for. There had been an announcement on Wednesday that teachers would accept the pay increase, but they were unwilling to return to work without that increase having been passed into law. Teachers even held a candlelight vigil last night, staying out all night in protest as they waited for the legislature to act. Last week, I spoke with Noah Carvelis, one of the founders of Arizona Educators United, the group that helped kick off the Red for Ed movement that culminated in the ongoing statewide strike. All right, and let me ask you to introduce yourself, first of all. Yeah, my name is Noah Carvelis. I'm a kindergarten through eighth grade music teacher in Phoenix, and I'm also one of the organizers with Arizona Educators United. All right, and so... Let me see. We're talking on Monday. The strike deadline is for Thursday, right? Uh-huh. That's and, correct. So let's go back a little bit. Tell me about the beginning of the movement that has led to this strike vote. Well, this all really started from just one day wearing red shirts on the same day, and that was March 7th. So we started there, and we realized that there was just a, a ton of energy surrounding this among the the education community and the community at large too here in Phoenix and all across the state. So what we ultimately did was we decided that we needed to that we needed to get together and, and continue moving this forward. And now this is where we are. Um, how many weeks now? Six or seven weeks after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so tell us about the issues in Arizona. I mean, we we're sort of familiar with the underfunding of public schools writ large, but what are the specifics in Arizona that people are really um, upset about? Some of the biggest things are we've had just massive cuts to education, billion dollar cuts to education that have continued on for years and years, about 10 years now. So that's one of the most frustrating things that affects all aspects of our schools. So a lot of our kids here in Arizona don't have textbooks that mm-hmm. they need to be successful. They, they stop at presidents like George W. Bush, for example. They don't have working desks, and a lot of the classes don't have paper towels and just the bare necessities that you need for a classroom. So yeah. what's happening is we have an entire generation of Arizona citizens who haven't been given a chance at academic success. It's been thrown away by the state, any chance <laughs> that they had at academic success, which is incredibly maddening, especially as an educator. And so... What, what happens in addition to that is educators are working in not really just bad, bad situations. And then on top of that, they're getting underpaid. Uh-huh. So we have the worst pay in the nation for elementary school teachers, and we have the second worst pay in the nation for high school teachers. Yeah. And what, what we really have is just an education crisis because our, our students don't have the resources that they need to be successful. Our yeah. teachers don't have the resources they need to be successful or to even stay in the job. Right. And our public school infrastructure is crumbling on top of it and we're hemorrhaging teachers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so what's been really interesting about these these various teacher movements has been the statewide nature of it. So can you tell us a little yeah. bit about sort of organizing across the state of Arizona and trying to bring, you know, it's a pretty spread out state. So yeah. what are some of the, yeah, the you know, the challenges and the, the things that have worked out surprisingly well about that whole process? You know, one of the things that's worked out surprisingly well is that um, we, we have social media, which right. really keeps us in the loop, and it's a powerful, powerful organizing tool, especially on a large scale like this. On a big state, a lot of the state is rural. Um, a lot of the state is Native American reservation. Mm-hmm. So having those 
those resources to be able to get in touch with people all across the state has proved to be vital. And that's really helped us stay in the loop and keep people involved. And everybody across the state is really, they're, they're fed up with this situation. So they're ready to go as soon as you get them plugged in for the most part. And so once we've been able to contact them and bring them in, we've been successful. So it's, uh, it's been challenging at times, but as the movement's grown, it's really been a successful thing. Arizona Educators United, tell me about that. What, how long has that been an organization? Um, how did that get started? It's um, it's really not a not an organization. Yeah. It's become an organization now, but in truth, it's, it's a Facebook group, and that started yeah. around the start of March, the first couple of days of March. Yeah, and it, it was started by myself and a couple other educators who said we we got to get organized. We got to figure out what we're doing here and how we're going to make a change. Yeah, and somebody needs to bring that change. Let's start a group and let's see what happens. Yeah. and now here we are. Yeah, and what has the relationship been between the Facebook page and the existing unions? Uh, it's been fantastic. They've really, the unions really let the Facebook page, Arizona Educators United and the leaders there stay out in front on this thing and keep driving it forward. And I think that's been the power of this, that uh-huh. it's a, a grassroots educator-led movement. And the union has been incredibly respectful of that. And they, they realize that there's a lot of power in that. Yeah. And they let us stay in that spot. But while we do that, they're offering us a ton, I mean, decades and decades of resources and uh-huh. insight and infrastructure, anything we really need, they lend to us and they let us stay at the at the forefront of the decisions and the charge here. Mm-hmm. And it's proven to be a really powerful partnership, especially yeah. in a right to work state. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, in Arizona, besides just being a right to work state, has had some attacks on public sector unions in recent years as well. Yeah. It's been an interesting uh, late winter and early spring, I guess, for teachers. Um, so what was it like sort of watching things start to heat up in West Virginia and then being part of this as it spread across the country? Oh, it's incredibly empowering to see that, see what happened in West Virginia, especially with the results. I mean, they stood together, they stood in solidarity, and they brought the change that they needed. And that's incredibly powerful to see. And I think every teacher around the, the nation looked up and looked at their classroom and said, hey, that could be us. Why can't it be us right now? We, we deserve better as well. Mm-hmm. That's what happened in Arizona, and it's been incredible to be involved in that, even in a small way. It's an incredible, incredible thing that's happened across this state, and, and as you mentioned, across this nation. It really is a nationwide movement now, and so it's, it's been empowering to be a part of that and to see that you, there really is power in, in the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the governor of Arizona has already made noises about finally getting teachers a raise, but you took mm-hmm. the strike vote anyway. So tell us about both what you heard from the governor and why, you know, continue to, to consider a strike. Yeah. Well, first of all, the governor hasn't passed anything. This isn't right. legislation. It's basically um, just a, a flyer with some goals on it right now. That, that's what he put forth. <laughs> um, so that that's beyond the consideration of what, what's, actually in the proposal. And what's in the proposal is problematic as well. So there's no sustainable funding source. So we're really looking at a one-time thing here, and we're beyond Band-Aid pictures like that. We're in a state of crisis. We're hemorrhaging teachers. We don't have proper infrastructure. We don't have proper resources. We can't just have a one-time 9% raise. That, yeah. that doesn't fix the problem. So it doesn't do enough for our kids college, and that's the bottom line. Yeah. And on top of it, without that funding that revenue source, we can't continually bring money into our system. So that's a huge problem for us. And the raises that people propose 
they don't they don't touch our demand of 20 percent it says that they'll get there but again without those sustainable funding sources yeah. it's a it's a nice promise yeah. and there's nothing in it for our for our students it's not going to increase or move the needle on our poor people funding so it doesn't do enough for our kids and colleagues and it doesn't have a sustainable funding source right now it's just words on paper there's no legislation so yeah. we pursued it and we we continue to escalate our actions because we need to change and so talk about what a sustainable funding source would be. Yeah, so you can look at other states that have, have done similar things here. Um, there have been sales tax, income tax, all sorts of different things have been proposed. I personally have issues with sales tax because it's a, a regressive tax and mm-hmm. it, it disproportionately affects the communities we're fighting for, like working class folks, like teachers and our students and a lot of our families. Um, so I do have issues personally with that, but... Um, it's certainly better than a one-time you know, raise, which he's proposed right now, and, and nothing's sustainable. So we can look at the example of other states, and one thing that makes a lot of sense to me personally is the income tax, where we have corporations and, and millionaires pay their fair share. What else should people know about what's going on in Arizona, both as part of the nationwide movement and what's specific to Arizona? They should, they should know that one of the biggest things here in each that's been involved in these sorts of um, battles has had certain things that really define what they're doing. And I think two things really define our battle. And it's, it's the relationship with the union, and it's been incredibly powerful, and it's been incredibly productive to have educators stay at the front and be assisted with the union. We, we touched on that. Yeah. And the other piece that I think is really important is that our students are at the forefront of it. So yeah. A 20% raise gets a lot of um, eyes open. It gets a lot of focus. But that, that's not what we're really fighting for. We're fighting for our students. And that's one of the reasons why we rejected this proposal. It doesn't do enough for our students and it doesn't do enough for our colleagues who are left out of those races. And that's one of the big things that's unique to Arizona is it's the, the student focus and the focus on the entire school. So it's not just classroom teachers, but we need to see raises for bus drivers. We need to see raises for the cafeteria staff. We need to see raises for the people who are working in the front office. All across the board, these people are incredibly underpaid in Arizona, and they, they deserve a voice as well. And how can people keep up with you and uh, with the strike? Uh, they can keep up with us on ArizonaEducatorsUnited.com and get all your info right there. You can follow me personally on Twitter. It's capital N and then lowercase O-A-H, Noah underscore Carvelis, down with the capital K and then lowercase A-R, and Victor, E-L-I-S. That was Noah Carvelis of Arizona Educators United. And finally, in the world of higher education, there have been some stirrings of union power as well. So paralleling the Arizona teachers strike, we had the Columbia graduate workers who currently operate as teaching assistants and other instructors and research assistants on the Columbia campus. They recently formed a union, as we've reported a number of times, and they have been pressuring the administration for months now to sit down and bargain in good faith for a fresh contract. So far, the university has stubbornly refused to even recognize the union, despite the recent NLRB decision under Obama to recognize the right of graduate workers to collectively bargain as private employees of their universities. 
The showdown has now culminated into the union's first ever strike. It was a week long. It was designed to be temporary, but they garnered widespread support from the campus community and from local officials, including Cynthia Nixon. And they hope now that the publicity will build momentum for further organizing and put further pressure on the university's administration to voluntarily sit down and bargain, much as uh, the NYU administration did a number of years ago with their graduate workers union. Um, The NLRB decision, meanwhile, is now hanging by a thread because the White House, uh, by installing a new conservative majority on the National Labor Relations Board, has been working to upend many key labor protections and precedents. I spoke with Ian Bradley Perrin, a PhD student in public health on the last day of the strike, to talk about the campaign and how they plan to move forward from the impasse with the administration. I feel like we we demonstrated um, sort of power of the union and the 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 size of the union and the support that we have among students. I mean, the authorization vote we had a ninety three percent approval on, and we had more than the majority of graduate workers voting on that. So, like that demonstrated um, the endorsement of our constituency. And then um, to have so many people out every single day in the rain, in the sun you know, holding a picket line, disrupting uh, deliveries, and to have the support of so many of the unions on and off campus who are essential to the running of the university, I think, um, has demonstrated that we're um, a force to be reckoned with, I would say. We had reports that in administrative meetings among the dean, they've called the strike crippling. So I think it demonstrated the value of graduate workers, and I think we're in a much better position to continue to apply pressure to the university over the summer. And if we don't get to bargain with them, then we're going to strike again. And this time it won't be a limited one week strike. And so I think we've demonstrated what we can do when we're organized. And we've also demonstrated that we are organized. This was, I believe, uh, your first strike as a union. And I think probably one of the first strikes you've seen in a long time at any private university campus for graduate Mm -hmm. workers. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think, well, within New York City, I mean, there was the NYU students who threatened to strike and they were striking alongside a number of other um, unions on their campus. Um, And that was in 2012 or 2013. So it's been it's been a while. Um, And I think we it was a strong showing. So I think we're very happy with how it turned out. Since you know, you were last out there organizing and getting your union certification. There's obviously been signs from the Trump administration that they are looking to upend um, a lot of precedents at the NLRB, and they've secured a conservative, solid majority on the board. How yeah. is that going to affect the politics on your campus going forward in terms of your relationship with the administration? as well as what you'll be doing legally? Well, I think um, nobody's surprised to see what Trump did at the NLRB, and nobody's surprised to hear that they're going to be doing um, a number of rollbacks of precedents that were set under a more liberal NLRB. Um, Of course, it's disappointing, but it also just demonstrates what we've been saying will happen all along. And, um, you know, what's really going on in terms of the university's administration and the administrations of a number of private schools um, on the one hand, talking out the side of their mouth against the Trump administration and all the violations of civil liberties, 
Um, but on the other hand, relying on the conservatism that we're seeing at the NLRB right now. Um, so I think it demonstrates the hypocrisy that we're seeing from a lot of, uh, you know, old entrenched liberal universities. And it's something that we were prepared to see happen and we're prepared to demonstrate and continue to apply pressure for us to be volu- uh, recognized voluntarily. Um, but at the moment, and for the moment, we still have the law on our side. So, I mean, we can't change what the president is going to do at the NLRB, but uh, we can continue to apply pressure for the university to do the right thing and bargain with us voluntarily, if that's the case. And you're looking broadly to follow kind of NYU's model, um, you know, if, that they recognize the union uh, regardless. Well, if I mean, if push comes to shove, I mean, for the for the moment, the law is still on our side and they're still obligated to bargain with us. But even if that uh, sort of benefit goes away, um, we're still willing, we're going to continue to push. I mean, that would be a setback, but, um, you know, it hasn't happened yet. Um, is there anything that the administration should do now in response to your demands? Are you, are you asking for any concessions in the immediate term? I mean, at this point, it's about respecting democracy, the democratic choice of their students. Um, and anything short of that is not enough for us. They've improved benefits for some students. They do that periodically as a union-busting measure. And of course, students are happy about that. But like all of that comes about as a result of the pressure that the union has applied on them. So we're holding out for a contract. That's like, that's the number one thing that we want. Nothing else will sort of satiate (laughs) uh, that need. There are broad things, issues that we've been organizing around, absolutely. Um, like we've been organizing around late pay, having a recourse for um, sexual harassment or harassment in the workplace, as well as sort of a standard minimum package for graduate workers, and just having all of the details of our work outlined for us beforehand so that um, we're aware of what we're getting into when we begin working. You know, we want to know how much we're going to get paid, when we're getting paid, um, and have a clear recourse if uh, we're not being paid on time or we're not being paid as we said we were going to be. But I mean, and also just having our budget outlined, you know, it's living in New York as a student is not easy. And so knowing when and how much money we're making is very important because, you know, it's not, it doesn't pay a ton to be a student. So it's important for planning purposes. Moving forward, I mean, this is going to be kind of seen as a harbinger of things to come for other graduate workers that are organizing around the country at a number of private campuses now. Do you feel like something is crystallizing here on a national level? I mean, I think since it's been happening, you know, for the last few years, but it's remarkable to see the number of successful campaigns that have happened at private schools in the last year. Um, And I don't think that that momentum is going to slow down regardless of, you know, administration resistance, um, resistance from the NLRB. Um, I feel like students have now sort of opened their eyes to what the possibilities of organizing together are, especially at the graduate level. And, you know, for most of us, it's not a short time at school and it's worthwhile to make it a place that's livable um, and make it worthwhile so that, you know, people are encouraged to go into higher education and have the support that they need um, to make it through the graduate level um, and are treated fairly as workers. So I think um, it's it's sort of hard to sort of go back to the way that it was before. Um, And 
you know, even over the time of us picketing this past week, um, the Harvard vote came through. So, you know, things are happening at big schools. And that was Ian Bradley Parents striking with the Columbia graduate workers. And here are some voices from the May Day rally here in New York City at Washington Square Park. We're going to hear about immigrant and labor justice from Jacqueline Gomez of Make the Road New York and Judy Sheridan Gonzalez, president of the New York State Nurses Association. My name is Jacqueline Gomez and I am 15 years old. I am a member of Make the Road New York. I am a very, very proud daughter of an immigrant worker. My mother works day by day to make sure me and my sister have a plate at the table. Even though my mom is a single mother, she has worked really hard. She has worked many hours a day. She even worked at the weekends leaving us with the babysitter to make sure we had something to eat. Her not receiving child support made it even harder, but most of the time she didn't receive the salary she deserved. Many times she would come back from work and leave to her second job. Seeing her leave was the hard, hardest for me as a child because I want to spend time with her and play. But she had to work in order to support us. This is why we need to encourage workers to make sure they receive the salary they deserve. Today we remember the first May Day in 1886. More than 300,000 workers came out to the streets just as we are doing today. They marched in the streets for labor justice. Today, we are marching for labor justice, LGBTQ rights, youth rights, immigrant rights, women rights, Muslim rights. It's enough to just focus on Trump and Congress. As important as they are, it's critical that we also expose the ways that Wall Street bad actors like JP Morgan, Chase, Wells Fargo, and BlackRock are helping to finance the infrastructure for Trump's attacks on our communities. Our message is clear. We will march and organize our community until we get the respect and dignity dignity we deserve. Now I want you to chat with me as a single community. El pueblo unido jamás será vencido. El pueblo unido. How are y'all feeling? You know we gotta ask that question. We're nurses, right? Because as nurses, no decimos donde están los papeles. Decimos como te sienten. Donde te duele. That's what we say. We don't ask for your papers. We ask how you feel. We ask what's wrong. We ask, how can we help you? Not how can we hurt you? Because todos son inmigrantes. Todo, todo el mundo en este, en este mundo, en este país, somos inmigrantes. And the nurses care for everybody. We don't care how you look, what your sexual orientation is, what your gender is, what your color is, where you were born, and what you have in your pockets. All we care about is how do you feel and how can we help you? We care for New York, we care for America. That's what's important to us as nurses. But I tell you something, people are waking up. We used to be 40,000, we just won a big election. Now we're 42,000. Those nurses in Albany Medical Center, they weren't cowed by union busting, by employer tactics. They voted two to one for NYSNA to represent them in their hospital, to fight exploitation. And people are waking up. They're waking up in West Virginia, aren't they? Yeah! They're waking up in Arizona. Yeah! It doesn't matter what the laws are because our employers don't respect the laws anyway. Why should we? They're waking up in, in uh, Indiana. And today, in Puerto Rico, the entire country is out there on strike on May Day. Because we know, and maybe one day we'll see that happen here, I look forward to that day when we have a strike, where all the workers are together, because we know we have to be united. It doesn't matter what we do, 
because nothing happens without us. Do people eat without us? Do anything get clean without us? Does anything get built without us? Do the streets, do the streets get clean without us? Do the trains run without us? Do the lawns get manicured without us? Does anything get fixed without us? That is power. You know what that is? That's worker power. What kind of power? This, uh, this onslaught, this attack against workers, and this is what we say. Resist resistencia. That's what we're about. We have to resist and not just ask for what we had before, but ask for more because we deserve it. Who deserves it? What kind of power do we have? What kind of power? There we go. Thank you so much. And that was Jacqueline Gomez of Make the Road New York and Judy Sheridan Gonzalez of New York State Nurses Association speaking at the May Day Rally at Washington Square Park. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. So my pick for this episode is Happy Birthday, Karl Marx. You were right by Jason Barker in the New York Times. So for May Day, I've been on a bit of a Marx kick for obvious reasons. Uh, but I found this retrospective on Marx's legacy refreshingly nostalgic as well as contemporary because it analyzes Marx's ideas not as rigid doctrine, frozen in time forever, but as a living intellectual idea. His critics often try to dismiss his arguments, as you know, by linking Marxism to Stalinist dogma or to the oppression of past demagogues who exploited his theories to bolster their undeserved power. But it's important to remember that he developed his ideas in the flush of his youth And as a young philosopher, something inherently malleable emerged from them. While this foundation of his ideas was rooted in materialism and the idea that economic interests were fundamental to the human experience, the value of his social critique today is not necessarily a prescription for revolution or even reform, but the power to cut through the BS that keeps us in the delusion that market solutions are always inevitably superior. As Barker writes, quote, let's be clear, Marx arrives at no magic formula for exiting the enormous social and economic contradictions that global capitalism entails. According to Oxfam, 82% of the global wealth generated in 2017 went to the world's richest 1%. What Marx did achieve, however, through his self-styled materialist thought, were the critical weapons for undermining capitalism's ideological claim to be the only game in town. So it was reality against ideology. Marx's radicalism can also be viewed in the context of challenging the conventions of his intellectual realm as well. He savaged the so-called poverty of philosophy by bringing his arguments around to what we call today the real world and ensured that they'd continue to live and to thrive because they were precisely rooted in the material world around us, which is always evolving. 
His philosophy rejected the lofty theoretic pronouncements of his self-important contemporaries. Thinkers like Hegel helped him formulate his ideas, but he went beyond them by bringing them down to earth. He was not content to dwell in the world of ascetics. He believed that to affect real change, you needed to be on the ground with your feet firmly planted with the masses. As Barker notes, quote, Marx refused to endorse their reality. In an ironic Hegelian twist, it was the complete opposite. It was the material world that determined all thinking. As Marx puts it in his letter, if previously the gods had dwelt above earth, now they became its center. The idea that God, or gods, dwelt among the masses, or was in them, was of course nothing philosophically new. But Marx's innovation was to stand idealistic deference, not just to God, but to any divine authority on its head. Marx emerged in an age when the radical intellectual stance was to take down notions of God and salvation. Marx took the elite down one notch as well and recentered the grit and the uncompromising realism of the poor into the center of his philosophy. And that formed the foundation for his ideas for an answer. He believed in activism as a force unto itself rather than some leaden antiseptic formula for reforming society. The value of radicalism was its uncompromising energy and the sense of uncertainty and possibility that it unleashes in all of us. Settling on a single answer is precisely not the point. And that's why Marx's philosophy remains vibrant and culturally syncretic over 150 years later. Marx himself put it best when he wrote in 1845, philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it. Don't take our word for it, in other words. What do we know? Barker concludes, quote, Marx, as I have said, does not offer a one-size-fits-all formula for enacting social change, but he does offer a powerful intellectual acid test for that change. In some ways, Marx's litmus paper takes the easy way out, because we can't test his ideas against reality in the same way. While we can largely agree on his general analysis of capitalism, we can thoroughly disagree savagely over his ideas about revolution. But it's more important for Marxism today that we're self-critical, not just in our own intellectual lives and among each other in our dialogues, but in our social and spiritual lives as well. Marx didn't want us all to be any specific kind of revolutionary, but he did want us to recognize the revolutionary potential inherent in our collective selves. The piece I chose for ARG this week is from a very good friend of the show, Chris Brooks of Labor Notes, though this piece is at New Labor Forum, and it is looking at what will happen after the teacher strike wave recedes. Quote, if unions hope to build off this momentum and become a more powerful voice for teachers in public education, Chris warns, then they will have to make some profound changes and not simply return to business as usual, end quote. The teacher strike wave has proven that bans on strikes are breakable if solidarity remains strong, and teachers have built enormous power through that solidarity. 
But, Chris notes, the strike wave has come from a point of weakness, not strength. Teachers are fighting back because they have little left to lose, and teachers' unions have not been able until now to stop the unending stream of cuts and attacks. That is in part because they've acted predominantly as lobbying organizations in these states, rather than fighting unions. They have accepted the rules placed on them by conservative legislators and created a top-down structure that relies on staff to do the lobbying work while teachers teach. But they have embraced the rising action among the rank and file, not always easily or comfortably, but still, as a sign they can have renewed power. But then, after strike waves, how do they consolidate power? Chris writes, quote, if state and local unions hope to remain relevant and to build more power than they have now, they will need to break from the incessant focus on services, elections, and lobbying. One path not taken is at the core of what many unions have done for decades, collective bargaining. According to the Center for Economic and Policy Research, collective bargaining is permissible for teachers in West Virginia, Kentucky, and Oklahoma. This means that school districts can voluntarily choose to bargain legally binding contracts with teachers in those school districts. Depending on particular laws in each state, such contracts could potentially establish class size limits, lock in wage scales and health benefits, limit the use of toxic standardized tests, define the teacher evaluation and tenure process, and establish protections against arbitrary and unfair discipline. Yet, according to multiple West Virginia union sources, not one school district in the state has a collective bargaining agreement. Only a handful do in Kentucky and Oklahoma. End quote. The teacher's ability to use collective action to win their demands should not be forgotten, or repeating the struggles of the Wisconsin movement turned solely to campaigning for electoral wins. Their collective power brought conservative governments around, not an endorsement or lobby day. That's really what teachers should remember in November and in every other month besides. That's all we have time for today. Thank you, as always, for listening to us through 150 episodes in five years. And if you've just discovered us, you can find the entire archive of Belabored at DescentMagazine.org slash Belabored. While you're there, you can also sign up to be a sustaining member of the podcast and get digital subscriptions to Descent, sweet tote bags, and our eternal gratitude for helping us make a labor podcast. First before podcasting was cool and now keeping us going when everybody's doing it. Thank you to Descent for hosting us and Natasha Lewis for editing every episode. You can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you are a teacher in Arizona, Puerto Rico, or anywhere else that has a struggle going on, if you're a graduate student worker on strike or just thinking about it, if you're an independent contractor but think you might really be an employee, if you're a taxi driver or just a New York voter wondering what all the fuss is about with Andrew Cuomo. You can also tweet all those things and more at us at hashtag belabored. Thank you again for listening. We will be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. 